Another pot of coffee is brewing. My fifth cup is almost finished. So that means it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. This week, it's back to my usual programming as my first Chris Evans season has run its course with four incredibly different films. What's Your Number, The Perfect Score, The Losers, and of course, Avengers Assemble. If you haven't listened to them yet, they're in my catalogue, so go ahead. I think they're quite good. No one actually guessed the film for this week. Was the clue too ambiguous? I think I put three up there and I even put hints, even though they were incredibly subtle. So what am I going to be talking about? If I open a card that doesn't stop singing a song that is an earworm of the worst kind, then perhaps that might actually help. Of course, I'm talking about the 2010 teen comedy Easy A. I'm also going to be talking about a 2017 novel by Australian supernatural author Kerry Arthur. The book I'm looking at is the first in her Lizzie Grace series, Blood Kissed. And of course, it wouldn't be a week in the coffee household if I didn't talk about what's been happening in my mental health world and how I've been coping with things. And I will be talking about the shows and possibly films that I'm going to be adding to my watch list for the week. We've got a long weekend here. I think everybody has because of Easter. So (laughs) it's going to be full of lots of TV and film as we're only just coming out of lockdown and though I am no longer shielding, yay, celebration, I still have to kind of keep my distance from too many people. I'm also going to be making an announcement at the end of this episode as season two is coming up pretty quickly and there are going to be some changes. This week, As I've said, we are moving away from Chris Evans. So we're talking about 2010's Easy A, starring the incredibly versatile Emma Stone. Easy A is a teen comedy that was, in part at least, inspired by the 1850 novel by Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Scarlet Letter, which is apparently an American institution. It's not one I've actually read. I probably should, but it was never on the school curriculum for me. It had a tiny budget, at least in comparison with many films that came out the same year, such as Bounty Hunter and Shutter Island, which was just $8 million. But it went on to blast the box office and made a super impressive $75 million, which is almost 10 times what was actually spent on it, which I think is pretty good. I think if 10 times my investment came back to me and that kind of money, I'd be really happy. In fact, if I spent eight quid and got 75 back i'd be happy apparently the entire script was written in less than a week which is amazing when you consider how much goes into writing a single 45 minute podcast so far the rough notes for this are over 7000 words and it's taken me two days to put together so imagine that for a 45 minute podcast times by two because the film was one hour and 31 minutes long and then add in multiple characters. If you're amazed by the number of subtle and not so subtle references to 80s teen movies like I was this time round when I watched it because I was paying more attention, 
then it's probably worth knowing that Will Gluck, who directed this film, as well as Friends with Benefits, which starred Mila Kunis and Justin Timberlake, plus 2014's remake of Annie and the wonderful 2018 Peter Rabbit, but the less said about that one, the better, is a massive fan of John Hughes, hence the constant references. Though, that being said, Can't Buy Me Love and Say Anything, which actually played a huge part in the end of the film, aren't Hughes movies at all. Though many do tend to lump them in with those films because of the time they were released. Olive is a normal high school girl, but one single lie turns her from a girl that blends into the background into one with a reputation for being bad. The film starts as many teen comedies do, with a voiceover from the main character. The rumours of my promiscuity have been greatly exaggerated. I used to be anonymous, invisible to the opposite sex. If Google Earth were a guy, he couldn't find me if I was dressed up as a 10-story building. Pretty cutting-edge stuff, huh? A high school girl feeling anonymous. Who am I? What does it all mean? Why am I here? But don't worry, this isn't one of those tales. Though it sure started out that way. And then it changed pretty quickly when I started lying about some very personal things. So, let the record show that I, Olive Pendergast, being of sound mind and hello, average breast size, Swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Starting now. Olive Pendergast blends into the background, but she makes it very clear that the film isn't all about finding yourself. In fact, she's obvious in her disgust at the very thought of that. Her entire life is changed due to one single lie she tells in order to get out of going away with her friend for the weekend. Olive's friend Rhiannon, who is played by one of Disney's favourite blondes from the 90s, Ali Machalka, is very outspoken. She's very sure of herself and incredibly confident. And personally, I think that Olive and Rhiannon have a really strange relationship. They insult each other and lie to each other. Is that what teenage relationships are all about now? Because I don't remember them being that way, though to be fair, I didn't have many. Also, the word bitch is thrown around an awful lot, mostly from Rhiannon. And I don't know if she thinks that she's being nice when she says it or if there's an undertone of I don't like you very much because it does feel quite insulting. Anyway, this is where the lie begins. Olive simply doesn't want to go on the family camping trip with Rhiannon. So she tells her that she's going on a date, something that Rhiannon will possibly respect Apparently, this boy she's going on a date with is someone that Olive met through her brother, who is at college, and this guy is called George. Olive doesn't actually have a date. She spends the weekend singing Natasha Bedingfield's Pocket Full of Sunshine, thanks to a card she gets from her grandmother that has $5 in it. She plays the card so many times and sings along with it, you get the montage of her in the shower doing the Ferris Bueller with the mohawk and singing along. She dances around her bedroom to it. She's repairing clothes to it. And she plays it so much that the battery runs out. 
and if you've ever had one of those cards that plays a recorded message or a song those batteries last a very long time i think i've still got one in a cupboard that i got about three years ago but to be fair i opened it only about twice because i find those things a bit uncomfortable especially the ones with messages but i keep them because someday it might be a message from someone that i can't hear anymore of course she can't tell rhiannon the truth she just tells her that the date went well and Rhiannon assumes at that point that Olive and George slept together. Feeling pushed into telling the lie and completing the lie, taking it even further because she doesn't want to come out with the truth, Olive agrees and says that she slept with this non-existent date. Unfortunately, they're not in the bathroom alone. Pious and judgmental Marianne Bryant, who is played by Amanda Bynes, in what ended up being her last screen role before she took a hiatus for her mental health, has been listening to every single word that Olive and Rhiannon have been saying and is incredibly quick to spread the lie. Before long, everyone knows about Olive's fictional date and the school grapevine is vicious and incredibly quick and also very inaccurate. Now that people know that Olive is promiscuous, they are interested in her. I will say that throughout the film, you get glimpses of Olive's family life and her parents are very different. They aren't overly cringeworthy or massively clingy or too interested in her life. And of course, Stan Tucci is everything. I love him. He is so amazing. The head teacher is played by the very British Malcolm McDowell, he is a harsh taskmaster and I don't think he should be around children as he clearly doesn't like them very much. Olive has never been sent to see him before and he has no idea who she is. However, he treats her as though she is in and out of his office all the time. And she's in there purely because in an English class, one of Marianne's little friends called her a tramp. And she responded by calling her a twat. We say twat, but in America, obviously, it's twat, though it's not a an offensive term I've heard used very often in American films and TV shows, because it is incredibly English. At the end of the school day, Rhiannon desperately needs to know if the rumours are true, that Olive was suspended from school for calling someone a dick and punching them in the chest. It's incredible, I can't believe how well gossip spreads around this school. Seriously, have they not heard of fact-checking? Mobile phones and social media have a lot to answer for, and I wonder if that's one of the subtle messages in the film. And I say this as someone who loves both of them most of the time. The scene where Olive tells her parents that she got sent to the principal's office for saying an inappropriate word that starts with the letter T gets me every single time. The way that her parents stand in the kitchen just repeating tea, 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 tea over and over again is so funny. And then they end up asking her to spell it out in her peas because they can't guess what the word is. And I, I still love Stanley Tucci. One question I have with a lot of these films is, are the schools full of supermodels? Apparently, Olive lacks allure. But from what I can see, 
Emma Stone playing Olive is not an unattractive girl and she has the sort of voice that I've been told apparently is incredibly sexy, husky, low and breathy. The next day, Olive has detention with Brandon, who is played by Cougar Town's Dan Bird. I know that he's probably been in loads of other things, but that's what I recognise him from because I watched that series from start to finish. While they're cleaning, because apparently that is what detention is these days, cleaning the floors and everything because they can't afford decent caretakers. She tells him everything, that there was no man and that she is perpetuating the myth that started the rumour. Okay, Rhiannon annoys me. I have got so many things I could say about her, but I'm just going to say this one thing, though there will be others, I have no doubt. Rhiannon is narrow-minded and she seems to be determined to constantly push Olive to provide her with information as though she is living vicariously through her friend. Of course, we do discover later on that Rhiannon is anything but that anyway. Olive's love life, whether real or not, is now grist for the rumour mill. Everyone is telling stories about it and every single rumour is so far from the truth that they're getting more and more ridiculous. Apparently, three guys in a hot tub, an older guy, you name it, the tale has likely been told about Olive. Brandon wants to talk while Olive and Rhiannon are sitting on Rhiannon's beetle looking out over the valley and it's a beautiful view he calls her and asks to meet so when he arrives he he arrives on a scooter a little thing that is it looks a bit like a vespa i suppose he asks her to be his beard he wants her to help him pretend to be straight in order to fit in it's why he was in the headmaster's office it's why he got detention apparently the head teacher is a homophobe which kind of doesn't surprise me given his behavior and he needs protection at least until he leaves school olive's reputation is going to be of help to him if she lets him use it brandon's issue is that no matter what he says people will never believe him however if he tells them that he slept with olive then the fact that currently everyone believes the worst of her will make it believable in order to perpetuate the myth, the two go to a party held by a popular girl called Melanie Bostick and they play up to the gossip. They pretend to be drunk and then jump around on Melody's bed making fake sex noises that are so cringeworthy bad that you can tell they are meant to be two virgins playing at having sex. It's the most over-the-top scene ever. And I am surprised that the bed doesn't break as it's being used as a trampoline. Because, oh my god, the amount of jumping around and everything they do. And what the heck is this? Oh, the smell, the smell. Seriously? Oh, that was so funny. After they've had pretend sex, Olive gives Brandon her knickers. Which look to me to be really uncomfortable and impractical. But then with the dress she's wearing, it's unsurprising. Do all teenagers wear thongs or something? Because, ouch, dental floss is not underwear. There, I've said it. Dental floss is not underwear. As Olive comes out of Melody's bedroom, she bumps into Todd, played by Gossip Girl's Penn Badgley. And he's her childhood crush. 
Every time they see each other, Olive is just a little bit awkward. And right now, her reputation as the class tramp is not going to be doing her any favours, at least mentally. Well, they're not going to be doing her favours generally, but they're not going to be doing her any favours mentally either. When she bumps into him outside the room where she's just pretended to have sex with Brandon, it's both awkward and uncomfortable, though for her, because he is just smiley, happy to see her, and acts as though nothing's happened at all. It's as though the gossip doesn't mean anything to him. We do find out why later. When Rhiannon calls later, she is full of righteous indignation, or unrighteous to be fair, that she has heard through someone else that Olive went to a party and apparently had sex with Gay Brandon while she was there. Her words, not mine. Words are exchanged and insults are made. But then, to be fair, with friends like Rhiannon, who needs enemies? Often in a teen comedy, we'll get a makeover montage, whether it's a new girl at school like in Clueless or part of a bet, like not another teen movie or she's all that. In Easy A, the makeover is more a reputation adjuster. Olive is pissed, seriously pissed, and in order to ensure her wardrobe fits this new societal identifier she has earned, she buys new clothes and angrily adjusts them to make them even closer to the sort of clothes she believes she should be wearing as the school scandal. If people want to believe she's the school skank, then who's she to change their minds? It's as though she's kind of playing with this role because if she didn't, then it would hurt more, possibly, in her mind at least. Marianne and her fellow annoyances are gathered in a circle at the school and Olive is the topic of conversation. They don't actually want to help her, however. They want to get her expelled, or at least persuade her to leave the school. Marianne's boyfriend, Micah, is played by an almost unrecognisable Cam Gigande. Or Gigande? I've never known how to say his surname. The last film I saw him in was Twilight, and in that he definitely couldn't pass for a schoolboy. However, there is reasoning behind this as well. He is playing an abstinent boyfriend. However, as we discover later on, he is not quite the angel he pretends to be. He may proclaim abstinence, but is he actually doing it? At the school swimming pool, she bumps into Todd again, and he treats her like a friend, which is something that nobody else is doing. Everyone else is using her for their own ends. Even Rhiannon was using her for information. And it seems that Brandon is telling his friends the truth, that Olive is willing to do things for money. However, that's not the rumour that gets spread. Evan asks her for help. He tells her that he could lie about her and everyone would believe it because of the stories that are already going around school. He wants people to stop bullying him for being fat. He is miserable. High school is hell for people like him who look differently or act differently. So Olive agrees, but she does ask him for a a voucher for something, a coupon, because that way she is not getting nothing from it because at the moment all that's happening is her reputation is getting further destroyed unfortunately the rumor mill changes everything around and makes it out that she is being paid for sex like a prostitute and now we fully meet thomas hayden church who plays mr griffith the english teacher 
Olive's favourite teacher. I love him in this role, I really do. But I have to admit that I was very disappointed in him when he was in Spider-Man 3 as Sandman. Thomas Hayden Church as Mr. Griffith is one of Olive's favourite teachers who loves spouting cliches to get his point across. He knows that Olive isn't who she is pretending to be. He's heard the rumours and he is the sort of teacher that relates to his students and actually cares about them. He's married to the school guidance counsellor played by Lisa Kudrow. She's rather distant with him when she comes to see him in the classroom and she doesn't recognise Olive, something he's not surprised at because she is one of his best students and she's never been problematic. To be honest, I have to say that Lisa Kudrow's character, Mrs Griffith, is incredibly judgmental for a guidance counsellor, far more so in many ways than Marianne and Rhiannon are. Her advice is to shove a handful of condoms in Olive's lap and wipe her hands of everything. Micah is the next person to go in and see her. And this is where you discover that not only is Micah not what he seems, he is 22 years old and has been in the final year of high school for four years. His parents are apparently going through a divorce and that's why he needs to see the guidance counsellor. Okay, now I have a question for all you Americans out there. He's 22. He's an adult. Should he still be in high school? Can people stay in high school until they're 22? Over here, you leave secondary school at 16 when you've done your GCSEs and then you go on to sixth form from 16 to 18 to do your A-levels or B-tech or whatever else. So 22, does this actually happen? If you don't want to work a day in your life, can you stay at high school forever? After the events at the guidance counsellor office, Olive and Marianne have a single day of friendship after they bond over Micah's parents' divorce. Unfortunately, Micah is then admitted to hospital. It turns out that Mr. Purity isn't quite so pure after all. Oh my god, shocker. A 22-year-old who isn't quite pure. He's caught chlamydia. Micah, sensing he needs to cover his tracks and protect his actual mistress, blames Olive. He's actually been screwing around with Mrs. Griffith, the guidance counsellor, who then confides in Olive that she slept with Micah. Olive has been pushed into the middle of something that you can see is breaking her heart. This woman is married to her favourite teacher. She can either let her admit the truth and lose her job and her marriage or Olive can take the blame. Olive is now opening herself up to take so much shit in order to save her teacher's marriage. It's not true. While she is battling with everything, she lost this friendship that she seemed to have been building with Marianne and everyone hates her at school. Though why it's any of their business what she's been doing, I will never understand. And she goes to confession for the first time in the hope of finding someone to listen and confess. And she ends up confessing in an empty confessional. She then goes to another church and discovers that the person she's talking to is Marianne's father. Still loves Stanley Tucci. At lunch, where she is sitting alone, everybody else is as far away from her as possible, which I find really sad. And I've been there. I've been the person sitting on their own, but not because I have been exiled, which is what is happening here. People will use her for their own means 
and then completely disregard her as though they are too far above her, which they are not. She is longing for somebody to come in, be chivalrous. All these guys have asked her for things, but they've never once asked her out on a date, not even considering that she might say yes. Then at lunch, she gets asked out by Anson, who is actually Rhiannon's crush. He is the only person to ask her out, but things aren't always what they seem, and though he appears to be chivalrous, Anson is no different to everybody else. He actually asked her out on a date, which was nice, but at the end of the date, he shows his true colours. He wants to pay her $200 in Home Depot coupons to have sex with her. He thinks that the rumours are true, that she is paid to have sex with the other boys that she has lied for. It seems that Todd is everywhere. He has so many jobs and so many responsibilities. I've lost count. I think he's the school mascot. He does something else and he also works at the Lobster Shack where Anson took Olive on their date. Olive is heartbroken that Anson didn't ask her out for herself, but because he wanted to have sex with her. Maybe if he'd asked her out on a date and they'd had a genuine relationship, things might have gone that way. However, when he pays her, that negates everything. Todd, however, is the white knight. He knows that Olive's reputation is a front, and he's never forgotten the time that she lied for him, telling everybody that they'd kissed when they were eight, when they didn't, because he wasn't ready. He tells her that he knows she isn't guilty of everything that people are accusing her of. He is so gallant at this point and even asks for permission to kiss her. However, she says no, not because she doesn't want to though, because she really likes him. Instead, it's because she's an emotional mess who was just attacked by an overly hormonal boy who believes the lies about her. At this point, Olive knows that the lies have to stop because not only are they hurting her, but they are starting to cause damage. She needs to get Brandon to confess that nothing happened. But before she can get him to talk, it appears he skipped town. Earlier in the film, she's talking about Huckleberry Finn and how what happened with Tom and Huck would never happen in real life. A white boy running off with a big black man. And that's exactly what happens. That's what happens with Brandon. But he's happy, so it doesn't matter. He's admitted to his family and to everyone else that he's gay and he's leaving. So that's one avenue close to Olive before she even starts. Everyone she has helped tells her that they won't recant because their reputations have been built up in a positive way, even as hers has been damaged beyond belief, thus perpetuating the whole double standard even more clearly. Micah, it turns out, has also left town. He's been sent to live with his grandparents down in Florida while he's healing because the chlamydia has done so much physical damage. So now there is only one path left open to her. Mrs. Griffith, the guidance counsellor. Now, you'd think that someone whose career it is to help her students would be a little bit more understanding. No, not in this case. She tells Olive that while she has guilt because of her indiscretion, she is not going to risk ruining her marriage and losing her job. 
So Olive is going to have to live with the consequences of her lies. Understandably, as anybody else would be, Olive is not happy with that. And I don't blame her. She threatens Mrs Griffith, telling her that she'll tell her husband the truth. But then Mrs Griffith responds with, who will believe you against me? I have to say, Mrs Griffith, or Lisa Kudrow anyway, has something of a frantic Phoebe in her character, but in an evil Ursula way. So she's kind of like a melding of the two sisters from Friends together. And it makes her actually quite nasty. Not to be deterred, Olive goes straight to Mr. Griffith and tells him all about his wife and Micah, thus destroying a marriage. Mr. Griffith knows Olive and despite the outward changes everyone has seen, he knows that she's not a liar. The moment the words leave her mouth, however, she knows that what she has done is awful, but there's no taking it back, it's too late. Olive then goes to the only person she can confide in at this point, her mum. And her mum is a huge oversharer. She's telling her all this stuff about her past, how she was a bit of a skank at school. And it was true, she really was a bit of a skank. And she says this stuff about how she's super flexible and she earned this reputation. And she's telling Olive all these things that most people really don't want to hear about their parents ever. I don't think I want my mum to confide in me about this stuff at all. At the school pep rally, Olive gets a musical number and makes knock on wood both incredibly suggestible and really sexy. She needs people to log on to watch her confession and she has Todd's help in getting the attention of the entire school. As Olive finishes the tale and ends the webcast, we know that we're getting to the end of the film. Outside her window, she hears... Don't you forget about me. And when she looks out the window, standing on the lawn, is Todd holding up stereo speakers. He rode over on a lawnmower. He is her Bender, her Ronald, her Jake, her Ferris and her Lloyd. Essentially, Todd is her 80s hero. As the best known song from The Breakfast Club plays over the end of the film, we see Rhiannon, Marianne, Brandon and everyone else who benefited from Olive's destroyed reputation. And then we see Todd and Olive ride off into the sunset with fists in the air like Bender. This film is about reputation. In Olive's own words, it's Gossip Girl in Sweet Valley of the Travelling Pants. The rumour mill is brutal wherever you are. If the rumours were nice, then they wouldn't get anywhere at all. Olive's fantasy is to find a man who embodies the chivalry seen in teen 80s movies, especially those by John Hughes. To be fair, it's not too far from the fantasies that I had as a teen. Unfortunately, as Olive discovers, chivalry is dead. Or at least mostly dead, if the boys at her school are anything to go by at least. But of course, we're looking at life through the lens of a girl who went from no one to the most infamous girl in the school in moments because her so-called friend wouldn't believe the truth when she heard it. This film is fun, it really is, but it also has a message that the truth is better. This entire situation could have been avoided if she'd been honest with Rhiannon from the very start, though Rhiannon seemed to be desperate to find something. It's almost as though she didn't want to be her friend, maybe it was guilt for something, I honestly don't know. The one thing 
I really didn't get from the end of the film is why Olive owed Rhiannon any kind of apology. Sure, she lied, but her lie started out as an innocent one to save her friend's feelings. Okay, so she could have corrected Rhiannon's assumptions about the date that never was, but to be fair, that her friend had these assumptions in the first place is on her, not on Olive. I am still astounded that, the, that these two were friends at all. At the end of it all, Olive was guilty of two things, being stupid and being too kind. She was stupid to believe that when push came to shove, teenage boys who benefited from her lies would back her up. She was also too kind, which led to stupidity, when she took the fall for an adult who had a lot more to lose than she did. Olive was hurt by the lies. People turned against her. She had no one she could rely on to have her back, at least until Todd revealed his true feelings. And though she gained notoriety, she didn't gain any friends for it. Instead, she was even more isolated than before because she couldn't trust anyone. As her reputation grew, so did her loneliness, which is really sad. People who preached tolerance and kindness showed her distrust and hate. The more I think about this film, the less I feel it's a straight-up comedy. In fact, I'd probably go so far as to say that some of the film was out-and-out out tragic. Sure, Olive gets her moment in the sun on the back of a lawnmower, just like Ronald and Cindy, at the end of Can't Buy Me Love. But she suffers a heck of a lot to get there. Definitely check Easy A out, though, if you haven't seen it already. And if you have, why not give it a rewatch? It's a great wine and popcorn flick. I enjoyed it. I really did. I hope that nothing I said puts you off the film. It is a good one. But I don't think it's the straight up comedy that people marketed it as. Love music? Join Russ, Michelle and Kyle as they take you on a journey through the decades and the music that went with it. Looking for a new podcast? Check out the Infectious Groove podcast. My name is Russ and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle. Every Monday, the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jams so you'll always have new music to check out. The Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear. On top of that, we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking, discussing, and sharing music. We also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. Find this podcast where you can find all other good podcasts, but only after you finish listening to this episode. So what's on my viewing menu for this week? Surprisingly, despite the fact that we've got a long weekend ahead, it's not actually that long. I am still hovering over the play button on the start of season eight for Castle. I know that my reluctance to watch it stems from a combination of if I watch it, it's going to be over and I wasn't keen on it the first time round. In the meantime, though, I have been watching two other procedurals that are both on Disney Plus in the UK. Both of them had relatively short lifespans, unfortunately. The first is Rosewood, which is about a Florida-based private pathologist with heart issues who works with someone from the local police force. The other is Perception, about a paranoid schizophrenic neuropsychiatrist who works with the local FBI office to solve murders. You sensing a little bit of a theme here. I will also be watching episode three of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Luckily, last week I got to watch it and 
before I started work on Friday morning because the clocks had changed in the US and they hadn't in the UK. Unfortunately, they have now changed over here too, so it's going to be back to normal watching it after work. I know that there have been a few observations that it's not what people expected, but then, to be fair, I have learned not to expect anything from Marvel in general, just anticipate it. And I am already anticipating that this third episode, which unfortunately means we only have three more to go afterwards, will be the tipping point. Last week was full of action, and I have to say that the scene when Bucky and Sam saw Bucky's therapist had me laughing. It was so funny. It it gave you the chemistry that they had in The Beetle back in Civil War. I love how they've built on these two characters and made them less Steve's sidekicks and more their own people. It had to happen at some point. As for the new Captain America, I'm going to withhold judgment on that one. I will say that Wyatt Russell is very good at playing John Walker. I just hope that people can separate the actor from the character he plays because I really get the feeling you're meant to loathe the guy by the end of this. But he is not his role. I also have to admire the fact that they aren't holding back on touching on more sensitive subjects that are very political at the current time racism, abuse of power, false imprisonment and so on. They are using societal issues that people identify with and recognise but they aren't doing it in a patronising way, just highlighting that these things happen, that this is the real world. Sam and Bucky are in the real world, albeit one in which superpowers exist, so maybe parallel? I don't know. This week, I picked a book from the second most popular character in the poll I conducted a few weeks ago. Well, it was actually joint second, to be fair. Supernatural or paranormal. I'm going to be working my way through the poll results, so there are two more to go after this. The next one is fantasy. Bloodkissed is a 2017 novel by Australian supernatural author Kerry Arthur. It's the first in a series of eight books about a pure-born witch, Elizabeth Grace, who has been cast out by her family because she wasn't born with powers that they recognise. In a world where magic and science sit side by side and powerful witches are considered necessary aids for all governments, Lizzie Grace is something of an outlier. Though born into one of the most powerful blue-blood witch families, she wants nothing to do with either her past or her magic. But when she and Belle, her human familiar and best friend, open a small cafe in the Thalen Werewolf Reservation, she quickly finds herself enmeshed in the hunt for a vampire intent on wreaking bloody havoc. It's a hunt that soon becomes personal and one that is going to take all her skills to survive. That's if the werewolves, who hate all things witch, don't get her first. I have to say, didn't see the summary before I picked the book, but now I have read the book and the summary, I don't think it's actually that accurate a summation of what I personally felt the book was about. I have read a considerable number of paranormal or supernatural novels in my time, starting with The Changeover all the way back in 1986. Of course, the content of these novels has changed in that time, going from innocent hand-holding and making out 
from Laura and Sorensen to the very adult relationships of characters like Suki and Bill or Anita and Jean-Claude. Being a fan of supernatural novels, Kerry Arthur's many series, and there are many, have been on my radar for a while. But when I saw that the first in the Lizzie Grace novels was on offer over on Amazon, I thought it would be worth giving it a try. Admittedly, a lot of it had to do with the fact that it has a very brightly coloured cover and it stood out immediately amongst so many grayscale ones. The girl with the cherry red hair who looked like she was howling at the moon. So actually, when I looked at the cover, I thought, werewolf. I was wrong. I try really hard not to judge a book by its cover, but in this case, I was really hopeful that the book would meet up to the promise. I have to be honest, the characters of Lizzie and her familiar Belle confused me. Okay, I should probably clarify. That sounds really bad. It wasn't so much their characters that confused me as the witchcraft politics and practices. I was so confused at one point that I actually tried to look it up online and despite using multiple search strings, I couldn't find anything. If there is a Lizzie Grace fan site out there somewhere, can someone point me in its direction just so I can get further clarification on the political climate that is in these books in general? I liked Lizzie and Belle, so having said that their characters confused me, I did like them. And I even liked the officious rule-following ranger, Aiden. The characters were well-written, as was the story. But at times, I did feel as though I was reading something that was more gory Agatha Christie than paranormal romance type thing. This book is the first in a series, as I've already said. At present, there are seven, with the eighth due to be published in October 2021. And normally, or not normally, but quite often, I will purchase the next book in a series when I start reading the first one. But of late, I have become a little bit more cautious. Actually, not of late. Since I read the Bridgerton series in 2019, and I spent quite a lot of money, actually, on buying all of the books in the series on someone's enthusiastic recommendation... And I was disappointed. I have to say, not going to watch the series and I wasn't impressed by the books either. As I read this book, I was trying to figure out the motive behind the violent murders that took place. And I didn't feel like I really wanted to know what happened next to these characters, at least after the book. For most of the novel, the murderer is unnamed. In fact, he's actually dehumanised, which is kind of appropriate, I suppose, as he is a vampire though at one point he was human well a witch Uh, i'm confused he has no name and is reduced to nothing but vengeance and violence his method is madness but also strangely makes sense in some kind of way it's incredibly clever but at the same time the reason behind it is so tenuous and i think this is where confusion hit me for the second time while i was reading To be honest, I picked up the book and had a bit of hope that romance would be something I would find. Did I? Not exactly. There was a lot of unresolved sexual tension, or UST as we in the fandom world call it, between Lizzie and the ranger Aiden, who is also a werewolf. But did anything come of it? Nope. 
This book is more a supernatural crime novel. At least that's how I'd classify it now I've read it. As it is my first read by Kerry Arthur, I honestly can say I had no idea what to expect. I had read a few reviews on Goodreads for her other books and I'd heard good things about the other series because there are a few of them, as I have already said. I think that this is actually not the only series she's working on right now. I believe there's another one as well. The big question, will I read another book in the Lizzie Grace series? Maybe. Am I going to be rushing to read something else in this series? Probably not. The book isn't badly or poorly written, as I've previously said. The characters are well-rounded. The UST between Aiden and Lizzie is constantly palpable. The strong friendship between Lizzie and Belle is the sort of friendship, minus the confusing witchcraft politics, that I would love to have. I like the fact that Kerry Arthur has created a world within the existing one. Her world building is clever and incredibly detailed. Building a volatile political climate, a hierarchy of organisations run by different factions that reluctantly work together. It's really good. I have found another author to add to my list of paranormal and I will read something from her again. But as she has 12, yes, I did say she had some 12 different series to choose from, the options aren't exactly limited. All Carrie Arthur's books are supernatural in some respect, whether they're about witches, werewolves, vampires or angels, and I think there's one on demons as well. And though the Lizzie Grace series is based in Arthur's home country of Australia, this also changes by series, with some based in the US and other in cities that are completely fictional. Overall, this book has introduced me to a new author, but this particular series does not whet my appetite. So next time, I may look at Arthur again, but I will choose something else. However, I do now have another author to devour the back catalogue of, and I love those. Last week, I got really deep again about lockdown and my feelings of abandonment. To be honest, I do suffer from abandonment issues. They started when I was very young, and though, like many of the children who grew up in the 70s and early 80s, I was a latchkey kid, meaning that both my parents had full-time jobs and when we'd get home from school there was no one there, it wasn't down to my parents. I've always struggled to make friends, and despite knowing, as an adult, that it was probably partially due to mental health issues that had yet to be diagnosed, and unfortunately would remain undiagnosed for a considerable period of time, as a child, I often felt incredibly lonely. I tried to make friends. I, I really did. I'm a people pleaser. I will do pretty much anything, not to olive scales, of course, to make people like me. It wasn't easy, but I made a few friends in primary school. And here is where the abandonment started. <laughs> you know, they, you go to a psychiatrist and they say, tell me about your childhood. <laughs> I could tell you so much. It's this is actually really good that I'm looking at things and analysing them. It doesn't mean they're not painful though. When you make friends as a child, people leaving is really difficult to understand. So when my friends didn't come back after Easter, summer, Christmas holidays, 
having moved to a new village and therefore another school. It was hard. And because both of my parents worked and had three children, these friends, primarily two girls called Claire, same name, different girls, one spelt with an I and one without, they may as well have moved to the other side of the earth. After that, I closed myself off a little bit. The kids in my road that I grew up with couldn't leave. They were, like me, sort of stuck in the road where our parents actually still live. However, they weren't at my school. So while in the playground during lunch and morning or afternoon break, I was the one who sat on the wall with a book, half watching as other children played hopscotch or what's the time, Mr. Wolf? This didn't change much as I grew older. I had a few friends, but I was always just a tiny bit paranoid, so I would give a little and then distance myself. Over the years, as much as I hate to admit it, that has become my pattern. Sure, I can place the root of this in my formative years. Before I even turned eight, I learned that people leave and don't come back. At that point, it was more friends that had left me, not family. Though, to be fair, we didn't actually see my dad's family at all by this point. I will be going into that a little bit more later. As we're heading into April, in fact, today is the 1st of April, it's a tough month for me emotionally. And I figured here I could talk a little bit about my dad. I know that I remember him through the eyes of a child, mostly because I didn't get the opportunity to know him when I was an adult. No, he didn't abandon me or the rest of my family, at least not in the traditional sense. When I was 10, he was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. He was 33 years old, the parent who would treat us to cream cakes and, shh, don't tell your mum I bribed you with cakes to go to the supermarket, secrets. He was the fun parent while my mum ruled with an iron fist. She would probably say that she was the tough parent because my dad was like a piece of cooked pasta when it came to discipline. Anyway, I digress just a little bit. He was diagnosed on the 9th of May 1984 and that diagnosis changed my entire family overnight. For a while, he had intense chemotherapy. Okay, for a long while he had intense chemotherapy. He was in hospital more than he was out. We became a fixture in the family room on the fourth floor of our local hospital. And even though it's been decades, when my grandmother was admitted back in 2007, I still recognised the hallways that we walked down to get to her ward because they were the exact same hallways we'd walked down every single day for almost a year when I was 10. Even when he was really sick, he still joked. He still tried to make us feel better when he was feeling awful. He made planes out the cardboard urinal bottles. No, not used ones. Obviously, that would have been just gross. And even as he became thinner, lost even more of his hair, he'd started to go a little bald. He had one of those monk bald patches long before he started having chemo. He still greeted us with a smile every time we went and saw him. The chemo gave him nosebleeds, indigestion, made him weak and tired, so much so that when he came home for weekends, he would spend most of it in bed with an IV line in his arm. But he was still my dad. So why am I talking about this? I th- 
honestly think that despite trying not to think of this as abandonment, and though it wasn't a choice he made, when he died, which was unfortunately just 23 days after his 34th birthday, this was the biggest betrayal. I know that this is the point where many find God. This was the point where I stopped looking, but that is a topic for a completely different day, possibly because religion is one of those subjects I try and stay massively away from. I was always on the outside when it came to the three of us, my brother, my sister and me, and our relationship with my mum, which I touched on last week. I was the one who saw too much when it came to things that happened around the house when dad was in hospital. I understood more than perhaps many 11-year-olds, at least in that decade. Social media and the internet in general has kind of destroyed childhood in that respect. Despite waking when the hospital called us at 6.35 on Tuesday the 30th of April, I even remember the time, I went back to bed and it was as though the entire thing had been wiped from my mind when I woke again two hours later and had an epic panic attack. I can still remember running down the stairs with my school clothes in my hands going, oh my god, why didn't you wake me? I'm going to be late for school. I had to go through the pain of first discovery all over again. I didn't live in denial, at least not after the second time I was told. The first time was probably another mental blip. But for me, it was yet another person leaving me. Excuse me for a second. <sighs> Sorry. When not many years later, someone who bullied me all the way through secondary school said, no wonder your dad died, he was probably trying to get away from you. I don't think she knew that my biggest fear was people hating me so much they'd leave. Because in my mind, that's what every single person leaving me turned into. People didn't leave because they were moving house. People didn't forget to call. They were just doing these things because I was so awful and such a bad person. A lot of this still lingers. The, the fear that people haven't emailed me or responded to a message isn't because they are busy doing other things. It's because someone has told them something or they've realised that I'm not who they think I am. I know it sounds completely irrational. However, I've given you a little hint of my history and I'm going to build on it with a doozy. My dad and his parents weren't very close. They were incredibly insular and my grandmother spoke barely any English, despite coming over on one of the last boats from Dunkirk during World War II. They visited their youngest son when he was in hospital once a fortnight when they were making their trip to the local Marks and Spencers to get their groceries. I think that in my entire childhood, they probably came to our house once and we visited them every few weeks on a Sunday. We'd go for a walk with Grandad and Granny would stay at home doing who knows what. I don't think that she much liked children, despite having had two of her own. The little bit of English Granny did know was used to tell us how amazing her other son's children were. But since, since that point, I have spoken with my cousins and it turns out that she did the same to them. My grandmother was definitely not a maternal person. Anyway, after my dad got sick, the contact with them grew ever more distant. They didn't see us very often. Mum was busy and they didn't make any effort at all. 
I think that I last saw my grandparents at my dad's funeral. It was as though we pretty much ceased to exist after that, like he was the only tie they had with us, and we weren't important enough to them or their lives that they needed to bother with us anymore. My grandmother died when I was 20, on the 29th of April, so just one day shy of nine years after the death of her youngest son. I hadn't seen her in nearly nine years, and they'd made no effort, even though we had tried. We should have been able to take comfort in each other. Instead, they abandoned us completely. How did I find out she died if we weren't in contact? It was in the local newspaper, an obituary put in there by her oldest son, a man who was as heartless as his mother. In 2003, at the ripe old age of 95, my grandfather breathed his last. This time, there was no obituary in the newspaper. There was no number to call to find out that the funeral had already taken place. This time, I found out by searching on Ancestry while I was putting together my family tree. So, there's my story of abandonment. It started off relatively innocently and ended a little bit darker than I thought it would. Now, though I feel alone a lot of the time, it's partly through choice. I let people get close, but there is still a part of myself I keep very much closed off. Probably intentionally, probably subconscious self-preservation. I have friends, I have people I can talk to and I can share things with. And I'm still a people pleaser. If I am nice, people will like me more. As someone with mental health issues, I know that sometimes I put on a fake smile. Okay, most of the time. But I have learned, at least where some people are concerned, the fake smile is easier than the real tears. So, what am I saying here? I guess it's that trusting people is not always easy, especially when you've been burned a lot. But sometimes making the effort to open up is worth the risk. I am probably overly cautious by this point, but that doesn't mean it's hopeless. And it doesn't mean that I'm a lost cause. It's like making a particularly difficult cake. Take a chance with that new recipe. Sometimes it will produce something that's a little wobbly and it'll sink in the middle. Seriously, I've made so many lemon chisel cakes that have just been a disaster. But other times you'll end up with a cake that is fit for the gods. It'll taste like nothing you've ever experienced in a good way and look so amazing that you won't be able to believe it was originally a sloppy batter. Wasn't that incredible experience worth all the energy you spent on it? Before I go, I said right at the very beginning that I had a bit of an announcement about the podcast. No, I promise it's not that I'm shutting everything down and giving up. At the beginning of next month, I will be taking a two-week break to get ready for the start of season two. For a while, I've been talking about the TV shows I'm watching and how I may well start bringing that into the podcast. So this week, after a chat with another podcast, thank you, Lorraine, I decided this is exactly what I'm going to be doing. It's not going to be in addition to an episode. I don't have that many hours in the day. I'm still going to be producing three movie and book episodes a month. The TV show will be the fourth. I am still working on exactly how I'm going to be doing it. Will it be a season per episode or all the episodes in one go? If you have an opinion on this, do let me know. Though I'm announcing it now, the changes are to come and will start, as I've said, at the beginning of season two, which starts on the 27th of May. So 
not that long to wait. And then it's open season on the rest of my older favourites. To be honest, I haven't seen Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, Better Call Saul, Orange is the New Black or The Walking Dead. Perhaps I should. What do you think? So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the listen. I release a new one every single week, so if you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends or family and post a review on one of the many podcatchers out there like iTunes or Podchaser. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at notbeforecoffeepodcast. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I definitely have not had enough this morning. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell.